I'm, I'm probably going to kick it off with a little bit of banter about how we've been gone for a bit and maybe and you know won't drag that out too long and then kind of jump into the topic five four three two one all right man here we go great from outface productions this is listening glass arjuna welcome back hey robin how you doing my man i'm so good man glad to be back from the brink of oblivion that this 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 show has been in for a bit it seems like with our silence seriously yeah yeah it's uh i mean it's it's just been a wild time for everyone i think it's safe to say yeah i you know there's one thing i noticed which is as soon as we stopped publishing shows the stock market tanked did you notice that you know, I I hadn't thought about it, uh-huh. but I think you're onto something here. Yeah, are we, are we a bellwether sure that the world <laughs> turning basically depends on us publishing shows? Has yeah, been my conclusion. Well, you've followed a very logical line of thinking and yeah. made a solid argument. It's a solid correlation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> <N1>. one. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 two data points thrown on a graph together and uh-huh. correlated. So there you go. This is how science works, okay? <laughs> so yeah, we've you know uh, we would be remiss to not just acknowledge the fact that we are currently in a global pandemic and probably the largest one that any of us alive have yet experienced. Mm-hmm. Perhaps there are like a few people listening to this episode who were alive during the last pandemic that had yeah. as major of an effect, but I would wager that on any. I, I was going to see how long we could get through the show without mentioning that, and we didn't get very far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I had like a private goal of just like obliquely referring to it the whole time and without ever bringing it up explicitly. <laughs> But oh, I just took a sledgehammer to your <laughs> to your plans. Yeah. So as you always do, as you always do Arjuna. I've, I you know, it's it's I'm the foil, right? Someone's <laughs> someone's gotta be the foil on the show. <laughs> well, yeah, anyway, it's good to be back here. It and, is indeed. And you know, speaking of pandemics, one of the topics of today is basically chaos but a more kind of that's a common term right but a popular science concept that we're exploring today is the butterfly effect and i like a lot of topics that you and i've delved into it's it's one that i've always passed off as kind of seeming a little bit too much in the popular science realm and not really having enough substance to really be truly curious about. And, you know, YouTube always changes my mind about these things. Um, <laughs> I was like, wait, maybe that is interesting. Maybe I should look into that, um, which is the case here. And I actually stumbled across it. I was doing kind of like a Skype catch up with a friend and we were watching just like watching YouTube together together just like browsing and watching videos we thought were interesting and we came across one on the channel veritasium where the he's like a physics guy i guess and he he dug into the butterfly effect and kind of the science behind it and uh it got me curious so it it's really uh kind of maybe an overdone topic in a lot of science fiction and movies and he pointed out in the video that there's like 61 movies on imdb that have the title butterfly effect (laughs) or maybe i don't know if it's the title or if it was just like part of the description but i think it was the title so there's like a lot of little movies and some major movies out there i had the personal goal of watching one of them and I looked up their ratings on the most prominent ones and they did not fare well. So I did not do that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, listeners. I could not take one for the team there, but um, <laughs> I did think about it at least. 
And anyway, I don't know if these movies have really done a service to the topic. Hopefully we do. And uh, you and I haven't been in touch very much over the last couple of months, really. I think we both just kind of like fell into our respective rabbit holes. But um, I'm curious. We did bring up talking about this topic, and I'm curious if you dug into it at all or or if I'm going to be throwing things at you anew. Because you can have fresh eyes on this. Yeah, I, I have to confess that uh, I didn't go very far into the material. So I'm definitely going to be playing the um, the bright-eyed idiot. Oh, no. In, it's up to in me. This, in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're going to be steering the ship, Robin. Copy that. <laughs> you're going to be educating me. Yep. All right. Well, I'll do my best. Um, so let me see if I can start at the beginning, if I can identify the beginning. Um, basically the whole thing started, oh gosh, see, I'm not even going to remember this dude's name. It was, um, his last name's Lorenz. Oh, here's the keyboard. (laughs) He, (laughs) it was a scientist who was studying weather in the sixties and he created a computer model as well as they could do back in the sixties. And Basically, he had 12 different formulas applying to 12 different variables that would determine different variables for weather over time. So this is like a weather, of course, is a vast dynamic system. And what he was trying to do is basically measure or or simulate weather by measuring variables. And those could have been like humidity, temperature, um, what the atmospheric pressure is at a certain altitude and you know each iteration basically you it's kind of like you would watch a movie or or a video game they're all played in like frame by frame so what the way these simulations work is you have you start with a starting frame of weather here's the starting conditions there's a cloud over there this is the temperature on the ground there's the atmospheric pressure above that tree and you have 12 of these measurements and then you have formulas that basically conduct how those variables will change over time from snapshot to snapshot. And uh, I guess there's like mathy stuff about this. You can get into like differential equations and stuff that, that are specialized to do this and measure variables over time and how they affect each other. But I'm not a very mathy guy to be honest, and I'm not going to try to geek out about that. But um, the simulations he was running were trying to just, you know, create a basic simulation of this weather and and how it would change with with a given input of settings, right? So if it starts out, you know, with these certain conditions, how's it going to look in a week? How's it going to look in a month? How's it going to look in two months? And he basically, he thought that he had entered in the same conditions for two different simulations. And he ended up getting two totally different results like the the story is literally he like ran the simulation twice and the second time he did it he went to get some coffee and he came back and read the results and they were just utterly different like the weather outcome from the first one was just totally different weather than the the weather outcome from the second time he ran the simulation so he thought there was a bug he thought maybe it was a a problem with the hardware of the computer like a vacuum tube as they had back then, had blown. And he troubleshot that stuff and, and kind of scrutinized his program and realized that the actual, the difference had actually come from him using slightly different numbers in the two different runs of his program. So in the first run of his program, he was using decimal places that went out six places, which I think is like basically a millionth of a point right? A millionth Mm. of a a number, one in a million difference. Mm -hmm. And the second time he ran the simulation, he only had three decimal places, which will put us about one in 10,000 degree accuracy. Mm -hmm. So very, really small difference. And it produced a very different result, which he found fascinating and unexpected. And so, I mean, I had never heard any scientific history or background of the butterfly effect at all um actually i'm curious when you hear the term arjuna like what comes to mind to you 
I mean, I I think about that saying like a you know a butterfly flaps its wings halfway across the world, and that affects. I don't ever even remember what the original saying was, but that's supposed to affect what's happening elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Well, hear me, um, like just like like if if you had to like make up the best one you could or from your memory, what would it be? Um, I <laughs> yeah. So a butterfly flapping its wings. In one part of the world causes a tornado Which in another part, part Just like of the pick world. A part, like a country. Uh yeah. Okay. A butterfly flapping its wings in Tennessee um will cause a tornado in India or something like that. Yeah. Good. I like that. And, I like that. <laughs> and to me, you know, it, it's okay, so it's interesting because there's a there's a cause, there's a uh judgment on causality happening there Mm. but i've also heard it bandied around in relation to the idea of determinism Mm. so sometimes people will will think about it in this this it'll bring up um these ideas of of whether things are fated to happen or this kind of fate versus free will thing. So, so these are two, mm. you, one, yeah, one axis is kind of like this causation thing and another axis is this fate versus free will thing. So that's, those are the two things that are in my mind. I haven't had a philosophical discussion about free will in a really long time. <laughs> I kind of hope we get there, but I don't know if we will. Um, but I've, I like that you bring it up just because I'm, and the stuff I've been reading, I haven't come across it. But determinism is usually, um, it's definitely in this context, right? Yeah. Of so, I I and I also enjoy that you weren't quite sure what the phrase was because there's a lot of them. There's okay. a lot of different <laughs> versions of it that people had yeah. come up with. So, yeah. um, I he wrote a paper. This idea was forged in like 62, 1962, 1963. And the whole concept you're rotating around was that he was going to present on the paper some 10 years later at some conference. And he hadn't contacted the organizer of the conference to give them a title for his talk. Mm. And apparently the leader of the conference was familiar with the paper and just came up with a name for him because he had missed his deadline. And he called the name of the talk, Does a Flap of a Butterfly's Wings in Brazil Set Off a Tornado in Texas? Hmm. Okay. So I was, I was, you know, fairly close. Well, you had Tennessee, which starts with a T and is in the U.S. Okay. So, like, that's where your butterfly was. And then you were wondering if it would cause a tornado in India. Yeah. Um. So this is like a Western versus Eastern Hemisphere thing. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that affects things. I don't know. I guess Brazil's probably a bit closer to Texas than Tennessee is to India, Mm. but quite a bit. But they're both very far apart. The point is um, that as we saw in the example of him having some different decimal places in his initial conditions in his simulation, the same thing is seen in, in the metaphor of the butterfly being a far away from some weather system and some great event like a tornado, where a small change in initial conditions can amplify over time and cause a very different result down the line is, is kind of the crux of this idea. And people usually summarize that up as, as having um, a high ooh, sen- sensitive. Yeah, I think they call it sensitive dependence on initial conditions. Hmm. So if you run a simulation that's complex, and we're not even talking that complex. Like he had 12 variables in his initial one. He ended up narrowing that down to three different equations. And I'm not sure if he still had 12 variables at the end, but it, granted, it was much less complex, and it had a very, it still had the same result where if you had very similar starting conditions, but slightly different, um, they would the simulation would look very similar. Like this, the weather simulations would run seemingly parallel, say for the first few days, and then quickly diverge 
after hmm. a certain point. And then in his case, the weather a month out in his simulations, if they started with those very slightly different initial variables, would be just dramatically different. Um, you just have totally different weather to the point where like predictability, like this isn't really a model for predicting weather at that point. Um, mm. Because you're more likely to get a good prediction from climate data. What What's the average temperature um, on May? What's like uh, 10 days from now, May 17th? What's the average temperature then? over time that's going to be more accurate than if we run a simulation on it with with our best input data um with our well best so this naturally leads me to wonder my first wondering which is like how good of a simulation are we running right you know um, it's like what what are the what are the parameters of our simulation i have yeah and <laughs> i think What's interesting, I'll, I'll try to take that back to the simulation that he had, which nobody thinks that his model is an accurate weather model. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't really meant to be. And, and he actually ended up simplifying it down to those three equations from 12 equations in order to test whether or not that high sensitivity on, on those initial conditions was still there mm, and mm -hmm. it was and so even i guess mm, i guess physicists and, and people who look at this they would call his model of weather a toy model mm. um and it's interesting actually in terms of the pandemic because i i've been watching some videos on simulating the spread of covid19 and they try to control for different variables right so let's say everyone's socially isolating or distancing, except everyone has to go to a common meeting place, like a supermarket, like once a week. Um, and you're going to have to plug in a variable for how transmissible the, the COVID-19 is. And you're going to have to plug in variables for how long it takes before someone knows they're symptomatic. Um, and then, you know, presume that they're going to quarantine after that. And all of those variables have a big effect. And basically, uh, well, regardless of whether or not they have a big effect, what I'm trying to make a point of is that we're making, there's a lot of toy models um, kind of like floating around on the internet right now about how disease spreads with these different variables. And like, it, it shouldn't, it's not really that hard to go out and kind of create your own model. And like a lot of people are doing it. And there's definitely questions about how useful they are um, in terms of actually predicting the future. But what they can do is kind of outline the different patterns and, and different like sets of patterns and paths that this stuff can take. And I think that's exactly what they were doing and what he was doing with weather. Um, this is it's a little bit actually hard to tie this together um, in terms of you would think that, and I think it's actually called, I actually, I'm, I'm actually not sure about this. If it's called the butterfly effect because of the metaphor that we use about the flap of a butterfly's flies wings having the effect on the tornado, or if it has to do with something else entirely, which is how we visually represent um, these types of dynamic systems. Um, so let me try to unwrap that a little bit. So when an, another kind of parallel dynamic problem is uh, the double pendulum problem. So if you have a pendulum like you would have on a clock, like just a swinging arm or like you would hypnotize someone with a watch, something swinging back and forth, if you just have one thing swinging back and forth, it's a very predictable motion. And if you were to map that motion out in phase space, it would just be a repeatable circle. And over time, you could predict where that pendulum was going to be at any moment in time into the future. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Barring 
different conditions like if there's air in the room let's just say it's in a vacuum okay so it's just like it's like perfect ideal pendulum that it's a repeatable pattern and you can map it out physicists will map this stuff out and basically it creates this like perfect circle in this simulation of phase space and you know exactly where it's going to be at any point in time and mm -hmm. it's fun to it's fun to think about that because people would use that kind of analogy for predicting where the planets are going to be. Um, even kind of like primitive astronomers in all societies, all civilizations, were able to predict where the moon um, and the sun and other planets were going to be over modest time frames. So you take that single pendulum, which is similar to planets, and you can predict things in the future. But if you add one more thing like a pendulum at the end of that first pendulum so now you have this pendulum swinging from your clock and then on the end of that like whatever ornament you have you have another string attached to a pendulum below it and you swing that swinging as well and they create this really kind of bizarre i guess um string is probably not the best i think they usually do it with a fixed arm make it mm. a little simpler mm -hmm. and if so you've ever pendulum watched them affixed to a pendulum yep that's have you ever seen that yeah no like physically yeah or, or even i don't know if i've ever seen one physically but i've seen them in like semi like in animations and stuff um that's interesting so are they I'm I'm imagining that they're calculating into their model the effect of one pendulum on the other pendulum. Yeah. And and okay. basically you want to be able, let's just say you were only trying to predict the position of the second pendulum, that like the end of it. Yeah. You're not even you don't even care about the end of the first pendulum. You're just trying to figure out where that second pendulum is gonna be over time and predict yeah. where it's gonna be. It's way different than one pendulum. <laughs> it's like <laughs> Oh, it definitely. acts so weird watching it. It just, it's like, it's, it's, I can't think of any better word than chaotic in the way that it moves and swings back and forth. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, I'm imagining that the swinging of the top pendulum becomes a lot more erratic. Well, the bottom one, especially, but both, both do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Yep. Um, so, okay. So, so kind of what we're talking about is once you attach, like the more you attach this, these different moving parts that have different states they could be in, the more chaos you create. Is that kind of what you're getting at here? The more, the thing I'm getting at is that when you have a system that has two variables that influence each other, yeah. And I don't think I ever phrased it that way to myself. So this is clarifying it for me. The more you have, you're trying to figure out a, a system of more than one thing and how those two things affect each other over time, the more sensitive those simulations are and the outcomes are to the initial conditions of this that experiment. Um, and so even with the the pendulum example, I said, let's just assume they're in a vacuum and let's assume they're like ideal pendulums and that their bearings or whatever they're spinning on don't lose grease and they have no friction. You know, it might be easy to predict where those two things will be over time. But if any of those, if one has slightly less grease or if there's a little bit of a different breeze in the room when you run the simulation again, the, the where those pendulums are going to be after 15 minutes is just not going to look anything like the other. Okay. Yeah. But I, I lose myself. I think that I'm like some of our topics before <laughs> I realized that some of these things are best expressed visually. And mm. this one in this particular aspect of it anyway, um, when we draw a graph of the pendulum, a single pendulum, it'll be a circle. And when, if you drew a graph of two, um, showing where these different pendulums could end up, I don't even know what that would look like. But in, in terms of the weather simulations, you get these line, these dots following each other. And if you follow the paths of them, 
they end up drawing a pattern that's almost exactly like a butterfly, which is basically just like two ovals. It's almost more like an infinity sign, actually. Um, but you get the point. It's it's these kind of it's it it draws a butterfly pattern in this kind of phase space simulation graph mm. that we mm -hmm. have. So I just wanted to point that out. And um, you know, it just I don't I, I guess I didn't really know um what merit there was to the butterfly effect other than like Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> well is is that one of the films? Yeah, well Ashton Kutcher is like one of the main the actors in a movie called The Butterfly Effect. And I think there was like at least three of them. Which I've okay. seen. Was now did that film actually did it earn its name, do you think? I have no idea. Because <laughs> you didn't watch it. <laughs> well, exactly. I think that I can only presume that the movie focuses on a seemingly small choice or decision that a character makes and then yeah. results in some like catastrophic or tragic consequences. Well, so that's... That's kind of part of this that interests me, right? Because, okay, for example, and we see this a lot in movies and fiction of various kinds where people travel through time mm -hmm. and they're observing the butterfly effect and the fact that they're like, don't touch anything, don't mess with anything, right? right? right. Yeah. Um, because the smallest little change that you make at that one time can have massive ramifications for the future of everything. Right. Um, and I mean, first of all, I've always thought that that was a little bit ridiculous, the assertion that like, okay, like if you time travel, period, you're messing with stuff, right? Yeah. So it's not like, I think it's, uh, you're kind of missing the, the whole point of the butterfly effect if you think that you can somehow mitigate or improve upon the outcome by doing yeah. that. I mean, yeah. Once there's time travel, everything's kind of fucked at that point. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. So, so first, that that always kind of bothered me. Yeah. But, but beyond that, I think we we get into this notion of determinism, uh, mm -hmm. uh, or like, like is. So is the universe just this writhing mass of particles moving in random directions and just kind of affecting itself emergently in every moment? Mm-hmm. Or... Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. All right. So, so you believe that. I don't well, know. Because I was going to say the other option is that, like, that the chaos can be explained and calculated mm. precisely. And therefore, if you were to map it accurately enough, right. it would in fact not be random at all, but it would be a right. carefully orchestrated series of occurrences. I like that thought experiment. Yeah. And the th I think the key catch is you said if you could map it perfectly yeah right so like what would that mean what would that mean in terms of like weather um i i can't remember where i got this from or what where it originally came from but someone was like if you had a map of the united states that was the size of the united states like it wouldn't really be a useful map anymore. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And my point is like, or like another quote is like, the map is not the territory. Like any model, we're always constrained to our models and we're always, they're always by their nature and going to be constraining in terms of how precise and representative they can be. Um, and that doesn't mean they're not useful. It just means that maybe they're a little bit limited in their usefulness. But the more detailed and precise and representative they become, the more cumbersome they become. <laughs> so there's this 
you know, toy models are fun because they're easy to make and they can still generate patterns that might be useful. Yet, you know, once you add complexity to it uh, or in detail, like if we we're going to measure really like what are the starting conditions of an atmosphere, if you're going to project the weather, are you just going to use data of the atmosphere from the Pacific Northwest to figure out what the weather is going to be like in Eugene? No, like we need to know the, the weather above the Pacific Ocean and the things next to the Pacific Ocean and the things next to those. <laughs> and to what level of detail, you know? Um, I It's kind of mind boggling to think about the level of detail, the, the amount of data that we probably collect on weather uh, globally. Not just with like little weather stations and stuff, but remote sensing from satellites that can just literally kind of take snapshots of the atmosphere second to second um, and take snapshots of ocean temperatures and currents and the way that those two things interplay on each other. Not to mention um, any like changes to land surface, uh, such as deforestation or forest fires or things like that. Um, or butterflies flapping their wings is like not even anywhere near entering the level of detail for the simulation I'm talking about. Um, but it's argued that it would, it could have an effect maybe on some people might argue whether or not it really would. Um, but well, what, what let's talk about that then let's yeah. talk about that because I think, okay. I think that kind of gets down to the crux of the issue here is that, mm -hmm. If you have a if you have a simulation which is linear, hmm. then the tiniest what change. Do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is a simulation in which there is uh, there's no flexibility of outcome, mm -hmm. in which every point in that simulation is a direct result of the the particular uh, input right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then of course every, the tiniest small change will make a difference but that's that's only in one kind of a model right so in another model i mean here's here's the simplest example you have a bowling ball that's sitting on the table and if an ant waltzes up and pushes on that bowling ball it's not going to move and the ant could try as hard as it wanted to push the bowling ball, but it wouldn't be able to move. But meanwhile, you could just walk in and give the bowling ball a tap and it would start rolling, right? So, mm -hmm. so the butterfly effect would have very little to no effect on the bowling ball, whereas you would have a profound effect on the bowling ball in that particular simulation. And so mm -hmm. what it makes me wonder is like, it, like, does it just all depend on the sensitivity of that particular system, on the particular input that's required to effect a noticeable change in that particular system, right? Um, it could be, I mean, it could just be a matter of scale. Like, for example, hmm. the ant pushing on that bowling ball might have a profound effect on the molecules right. or on the cells right. in, but I inside think the ant. Right? What this is saying, this isn't because I think those are very different scales of inputs, right? So, like me pushing on the bowling ball versus the ant, like I am probably over a thousand times more powerful, right? Or yeah, maybe more than that. I don't know. Um, so that's not really. I don't think we're in the realm of sensitive dependence on initial conditions anymore. There, I think we're. Those are dramatically different conditions to start with. But I think what the this idea is saying is that if you had an ant push on that bowling ball from the left side in one initial condition and then in a separate simulation you had it push on the right side. I hope I said left before. Did I Yeah, you, you did. <laughs> Different good, sides. Good. All yeah. right. And um and then those would have very different results, not immediately, like immediately the simulation might basically pre be producing the same results for a few iterations, say minutes, hours into the future. And then 
ultimately the bowling ball ends up uh you know a week later on a different side of the room in one simulation than the other sort of thing it probably wouldn't though right i mean like in in real life it wouldn't all right so I here's think. where I'll, i'm gonna um cut us a break a little bit okay okay <laughs> lay it on us because i think we're at the point where it's it'd be easy to draw the conclusion that this smallest minutiae little subtle nuanced detail um in the world and any of our actions could have some really dramatic chaotic unpredictable effect in the future and i'm not actually sure that that is my takeaway from this as i looked more into it and the reason is that i talked about the face space and how it drew a kind of butterfly pattern earlier now let's say a lot of the like examples i saw would start with like three different initial conditions that were almost identical just like really really close to the same and then they would start to draw like these lines would start drawing in these like infinity symbols but then like sometimes one instead of like looping over from the left side to the right side and, and like doing an infinity loop over there it would stay on the left side so like there you'd see a divergence however the pattern over time is the same like they're going to be alternating from the left to the right side and they're going to basically stay um and what are it's they're going to kind of orbit what are called these lorenz attractors is what they were called named after the guy who came up with this idea and so in in other words it's not random what these things are doing but it is a little bit chaotic and i i think that i would like to actually do a maybe a follow up um i wish i would have I, I've talked a little bit or, or studied entropy a little bit before, and I say studied in a very loose way. <laughs> Tried to wrap my head around what entropy means. And um, it, it is basically like disorder, um, but I, it, it's a maybe a topic for a different time. I don't want to conflate the two. But basically, you still end up in this kind of like pattern set. You know, it's not like, one pattern's drawing a butterfly type pattern and then another one's drawing a snake, you know, like a long slender oval over and over um, or a star pattern. We're kind of in the same space. And so I think it says that patterns are reliable, but the specific state that things will be in at a, after a certain amount of time is still very unpredictable. So we have a kind of equality slash harmony even between determinism and chaos. Because determinism is basically saying, okay, things behave in this way and therefore they're predictable. And chaos is saying, but hold on a minute, because you don't actually have enough information and you don't actually know enough. Your simulations will never be accurate enough and they'll never have perfect input information to be able to actually predict where things are going to be in the weather a month from now. Mm -hmm. But if you watch them over time, you will see the patterns and those are, in fact, reliable patterns. Mm. So... To me, what I take away from that is that we ultimately have no way of knowing whether a butterfly flapping its wings would create a tornado halfway across the world, right? Well, yes. Well, <laughs> the funny thing about that metaphor for me is that at any given moment, there's millions of butterflies flapping their wings. In, in other words, like there's a lot of very sensitive inputs to all of these kind of simulations and systems, right? Mm -hmm. Whether we're predicting the spread of a virus or we're predict predicting the weather two weeks out, 
each of those systems has a lot of really small but significant inputs that are going to influence how it how it behaves over time. So mm. is it really that that butterfly? I don't think that that butterfly had any stronger an effect than any other um, variable, right? Mm -hmm. And you're never going to have a situation in a complex system where all of the variables are starting in the same state, except for yeah. one, which is just a little bit off. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like there's going to be a lot of things that are a little bit different each time you run through it in real life. So... Well, and I suppose if you stop to... Con okay, so if you accept the fact that A, everything in the universe, as far as we know it, is in a certain amount of motion, right? Would you say that that's a fairly accurate statement? Sure. I think... I, I mean, sure, definitely. I mean, everything... Let's assume, is, based, yep. based on... on what we seem to know about the way the universe works, it seems mm -hmm. to be a collection of moving particles, right? Yeah. So if that is and the like case... Nothing, is, nothing that exists is like really completely still. Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if we, do, if, we, if we accept that notion, which it seems to me like is a largely accepted notion in physics at the moment... Then I guess you know you could say that every every motion does matter, right? Like every molecule moving through every atom moving through the universe has an effect, and yeah, no no matter how small, and that if you you know so it could be that that ant pushing on that bowling ball maybe it doesn't change any particular system that our naked human eye can see other than just that the ant was on one side versus the other on that particular day. But it could be that it's having a profound effect just on a scale that we're not really paying attention to. Yeah. So that's, you know, so when, when, when you start to think about it like that, um, like the, the title is rather grandiose in thinking that you could have such a different scale of effect well, and what what I, what I like about that is that the ant is having a, an immediate and maybe even strong effect immediately. Well, immediately twice. Immediately, immediately. <laughs> on the bowling, like on the part of the bowling ball it's touching, right? Like either thermodynamically, if not kinetically. Yeah. And that is going to create a ripple effect that affects everything around it. Like right. literally to infinity over time literally well, to like the edges of the universe that's <laughs> right that's what i wonder about you know that's yeah. the part that i wonder about is like is that really the case i mean i suppose so like if well, if the ant is imperceptibly moving the bowling ball and that is imperceptibly moving the molecules in the air and those molecules as a result are doing something slightly different than what they ordinarily would have done maybe uh -huh. But but his this is this is where I'm getting hung up, right? Is again, right. it's like I just I think that that could break down. Like for example, if let's say you drop a, a drop of water into a bucket, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say you drop it in on the left side versus the right side. Okay, it's going to have like a, a a minor effect on the water in that bucket. Is it really going to affect anything else? You know, especially if that's a closed room, if the windows are closed, mm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, right. Well, it, I mean, it, is, yes, it, 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 it will affect the system it. in that room, right? Think but, about it this way. Um, when in high school, I took like a conceptual physics class and we were learning about gravity the equation for gravity, which I'm not going to recite verbatim, but basically it has to do with the distance between two masses. Like you, you're trying to calculate the gravitational force between two things. And it's related to the distance between them and the mass of those two objects. So I, you know, it, the question naturally came up, um, well, like, 
how f- what if they're really far apart right like the sun and the earth are really far apart but they're super massive too so those two things obviously have a strong effect on each other um but what about small things right or what about things that are literally on the opposite side small things on the opposite sides of the universe according to the equation you can plug in like the really big distance and you can plug in the um really small masses and you're still going to end up with a number for the gravitational force between those two things it might be a really really small number but it's still there and i wonder though i wonder yeah. because because again it's like we're talking about linear predictable systems created by humans because like our systems are going to be by definition linear because you know we create them with a certain set of parameters right i think the supposition that the universe has to obey the same rules that our simulations do i think is is a little it's, it's got some hubris in it hmm. like and wait and well but then what well, you're I'm, saying what you're basically saying is that gravity has a range in terms I, of its effect i think that it's entirely possible that part of the chaotic nature of the universe operates on thresholds that's kind of what i'm getting at here hmm. is that yes things affect other things but you know um if the bowling ball doesn't move by the ant, then then it hasn't passed a certain threshold. And so the effect of that thing, uh, it might be confined to a certain space that it otherwise wouldn't have been, right? So that's kind of what I'm wondering is if, is if these calculations of force obey certain thresholds. And, you know, I mean, what do I know, right? I mean, it's uh, maybe people have contemplated this in their models, but to me, that kind of seems like one of those things where I could easily see physics working with certain internal tolerances that our models don't easily comprehend, especially in scale, right? Maybe there's something that works out on our planetary scale, but it doesn't actually work out universally for whatever, mm. because of certain thresholds, right? Maybe there's mm-hmm. an electromagnetic interference which prevents small things on our planet from having an effect outside of our planet, just like there's this kind of mass differential that prevents the ant from actually moving the bowling ball. So this, this, is, this is what I'm thinking about, right? Hmm. Are, these, are, are there certain limits imposed on these models just based on different amounts of force clearing different thresholds? I don't know. I don't okay. Know. Okay. Yeah. It's, just, it's well, something to I'm, consider, I'm gonna right? Recruit, I'm going to recruit the voice of a German guy whose name I'm going to butcher. Um, <laughs> Johann Gottlieb Fichte, Fichte says, he said that in 1800, uh, you could not remove a single grain of sand from its place without thereby changing something throughout all parts of the immeasurable whole. Hmm. So that's kind of back to the idea of me talking about like a really small thing, but it literally reaches out to every other thing in the universe. Does it? And not only over time, but like immediately in this moment. Yes. That's what I, I actually, for whatever, it's probably goes back to that time in physics i was just talking about where i was thinking about gravity and i do actually think of every little particle in the universe as being intrinsically and immediately tied to everything else by I, natural you know, law i'm i'm struggling with this i uh-huh. i think that this is as much uh the result of humans applying their own notion of causality to the universe as it appears to them hmm. as as anything i think but that what, it, what 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 you're suggesting to me then is that things there's a limit to the effects of 
that things have on one another? Uh, I definitely think that that's possible. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, 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 clear, I can't speak with authority. I mean, who can, especially around yeah. stuff like this? <laughs> I you won't know, pretend to. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it, we're, we're all kind of, um, primitive in our understanding of the way the universe works, but, but I, I, I think it's one of these things, like, I think it's one of these places where the romanticism of a, just a certain kind of feeling that people have, like, yeah, man, it's all connected. It's all a system or, or yeah. you know, well, as, but- as, as far as you want to get as well towards that whole notion of like spirituality or, or is, godliness, like, right? I do actually believe that, but I also take it with a grain of sand, if you will. Um, (laughs) just because like, yes, everything is connected in my worldview. Everything is connected yet. Most things don't have a very strong effect on other things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, if like, I, I kind of want to stick us to one metaphor. I don't know. We ended up with an ant and a bowling ball, but let's just try to stick to weather. (laughs) Okay. Let's talk about insects and weather. Okay. So (laughs) a butterfly (laughs) flapping its wings is going to affect air currents. No doubt about it. Right. It's it's an aerodynamic process. Right. Yeah. That is going to have an immediate effect on, say, the flowers that it lands on and how it distributes pollen in that immediate area. No doubt. Yeah, Um, definitely. And that effect, like a ripple in a pond, is going to diminish throughout space time. Right. Like from that, from the the location of that event. So I think that what you're saying is that there basically is a point, there's, there's kind of the edge of the bubble of meaningful effect. Maybe that's how I would, that's how I would phrase it to myself. There's an edge of the bubble or ripple of, of what we would see as a meaningful effect, but you're, I would disagree in the way that you characterized it because you characterized the edge of the bubble as being something rooted in nature. And I would root the edge of the the bubble, the edge of that ripple as being rooted in our own lack of ability to simulate and understand and follow the effect. (laughs) I think that the effect is in fact infinite, but it it is unknowable. So, so (laughs) the limit is simply in our ability to trace the effect. Yes. Which this brings us to kind of like an impossible, um, we are by definition in unknown territory here. Like when, when you say the limit. Oh, I, I know, I know. I don't know if you know, but I don't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I like your statement, Robin, because I, I think it is uh, at its basis very true. The limit of the effect that the the effect of things that we can trace is limited to the effect that we can perceive, right? Yeah. And I think that or, if yeah. more people acknowledge that simple truth, I think that we would have a bit more honesty overall in uh, in the various sciences. Mm. Because I think that that I think that there's just something very simple and profound about that, and I, I totally agree that the effects of things are wider than we know. That's just, that just seems true to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, I mean, it's just folly to assume that you're perceiving everything you're, you're not. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, well, I, I, exactly. I, I like that. And I think the hubris would come in in any amount of confidence or assertion that, we tag to or, or characterize these predictions with to a certain yeah. extent into the future. Mo- yeah. You know, most, most weather predictions are going to agree what Eugene's going to be like tomorrow afternoon. They're going to still mostly agree two days from now. Um, but it's been shown that eight days from now, that's a real number, eight days, that average climate data is better at predicting the weather than forecast. Mm. Right. So, so, so you're saying that the statistics become more accurate than whatever models we've set up. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a good way to put it. The yeah. statistical. Yes. That's a great way to put it. 
statistical averages and the patterns we found over time are more or better at predicting than our simulations, which are crunching numbers, you know, down to like what maybe one second intervals, maybe more, right? And trying to figure out how this state of conditions and and what we understand about natural law is going to affect the next state of conditions and, you know, a million iterations into the future. Um, yeah. So it's fun because it's, it's actually something I think about a lot. And it's not just about weather, right? This is about predicting like stocks, right? Like the market, predicting technological evolution, predicting war. Um, I mean, I can't even predict myself. <laughs> <laughs> so good luck um but you know and and the spread of viruses and things we're all kind of curious okay when are things going to open up more um when can a vaccine be made when can there be enough tests when you know when will everyone have got it and either recovered or not you know etc so well so one thing that i like about the pandemic as an example is that while it is very unpredictable ultimately just due to the to our, our ignorance about the full effects of the virus and the, the various the incubation periods the possibility of reinfection the number of symptoms that can occur the number of consequences that can occur i mean there's so much we don't know about it but one of the things that I like about these virus simulations is that I think there's a lot that we do know. There's a lot that we understand about the way that disease spreads. There's a mm. lot that we can look to in history. Mm. There's a lot that we know about human behavior. And so even if we can't predict, you know, maybe there's some super mutation of the bug that we can't predict, or maybe a certain nation's policy, either their domestic or foreign policy, throws a total wrench in the works and something else happens, right? But mm -hmm. I think that we can make some pretty useful, we can apply some pretty useful models which don't have to be particularly accurate to illustrate and help us create a, a meaningful change in the spread of the virus. Mm -hmm. And... I think that this is a really good example of where models are useful is well yeah is not in calculating specific outcomes but in helping to direct us towards general outcomes and I, I think I, the yeah, weather is a really good example that. of that too right because yeah. we're not we're just not going to know what the weather is going to be like perfectly tomorrow but our general knowledge of the season and our statistics and the current models that we're working with, they still give us some useful information to go on. Well, and I think there's a distinction there, right? So you were talking about statistics, which is mostly historical data, right? Like we have yeah. previous information, a bunch of it, and we've found patterns in that information. And we can we can do that with disease spread. You know, that this isn't the first virus humans have encountered. And yeah, even from the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, there's a lot of case studies there of how different cities applied different policies, um, and and studied this, you know, the the spread after those events and those decisions is known, right? So you know, opening things up quickly, and and trying trying to get back to business as usual, frequently resulted in a second spike, sometimes higher than the first, right? So that's not a model, that's historic data. And I think that we need to use both. Both of them mm -hmm. help us understand things, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you use that historic data, you look at those case studies, and then you also look at our little toy, mo basically toy models, right? Of how diseases spread. And hopefully, you know, epidemiologists have something more sophisticated than toy models, and I'm absolutely sure they do, um, that, that can help them kind of wrap their head. I think the toy models help with with people who don't have all day and all week to spend understanding the sophistication of this stuff to go and 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 think about okay, transmission is it easily transmissible? If I change that variable a little bit, how does it affect how things spread over time? How does it affect how many people have it in one week, in two weeks, in three weeks, and and five months? Um, 
things like that, where it, it allows all of us, these toy models, these simulations to experiment and think about and play with in our minds, the variables that, that we're all playing with, right. And our daily decisions, um, and our, our personal decisions to live our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I, I, it's probably time for us to get moving here soon, but I just want to finish out with, and it's funny actually, cause I feel like I'm, I am playing the foil in this particular episode, <laughs> but I just want for the listener to consider. I'll get back at you. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, I hope so. I sure hope so. I I just want for the listener to consider that it's okay to feel skeptical about this idea. Like I think the ripples in the pond is a great example. You know, it could be that you you drop something in a pond, the ripples move to the edge of the pond, they hit the edge of the pond, they stop, and that's it. Mm. You know, done. Mm. Right. I, I um. <laughs> I like, and it's not okay. Like, it's not that that's not going to have an effect, right? Here's another example. Let's say an eagle screams in the middle of the forest. No humans hear it. But as a result of that scream, certain smaller animals get scared and they start doing different stuff, right? You see what you did there? Like, now people in the future are going to be like, wait, was it a tree fall in the woods? And was it a sound? Or was it an eagle screams in the woods? And did it make a sound? Um, (laughs) Just, just well, like the Texas, Tennessee, India Brazil <laughs> thing, okay? Like I'm spreading disinformation, Robin. Stop. <laughs> stop. Um, but, but what, what I'm getting at here is like it matters. It matters as much as it matters. You know what I'm saying? Like, like sure. It, I'm not saying that it's not changing things, right? But I don't okay. necessarily. It, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that every every leaf that falls off a tree affects the New York stock market 50 years from now. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. it may be, you know, maybe that causes a series of events. Maybe that, that causes, you know, let's say the eagle screams and then a little animal runs away and then, you know, a, a panther chases it down and ends up in someone's backyard that otherwise wouldn't have. And that scares someone and they have a heart attack and yada, yada. Like all that stuff can happen. Right. Yeah. So I'm 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 not saying that it's not all and, of these I, things that absolutely uh, possible, but it's just like I'm also down for the possibility that like the eagle screams, it affects you know this small range of animals in the middle of nowhere, and you know, and that does have a profound effect within a certain radius of that thing happening, but. You know, it, it like we no none of us knew about it. It doesn't matter, right? Um, and well, I, I'm okay. just like I'm, well, I'm down okay. for that possibility. You know what I mean? Like I'm here's, down for the possibility. Here's what, here's that, what I hear you saying. Yeah, and I what I hear you saying is that basically small events can have wide ripples in the environment like if we go back to the pond the ripple goes to the edge of the pond you could say that's it but let's say there's some tadpole eggs over there and the ripple caused them to brush up a stick against a stick a little bit more than it would have if it didn't and then like a couple more frogs didn't get born and therefore like a snake didn't get a meal you know and the snake was snake was too fatigued to attack a human and the you know like my point is that over time those little changes actually do amplify. And I actually do believe that. I do believe that that is a a true takeaway from this model. Now, where I hear you saying that basically we should draw a line and and say that's the end of the effect, what I hear is kind of like there's the old like cliche, and I I don't mean to diminish uh, native populations, at all by calling it a cliche, but it's a cliche that people like me repeat it, (laughs) which is that, (laughs) um, that, you know, we should consider all of our decisions and the effect that they would have seven, seven generations down the line. I don't know anyone in my life who's ever tried to do that. Right. And the reason is, is it it sounds extremely fatiguing (laughs) to do that. And especially if you start considering all these minutiae and, 
I don't think that the human mind is actually well designed to do that well. Um, and so what I see here is a human limit, not an actual limit of, of the natural world and that it's sensitive dependence on initial conditions as it were. <laughs> so I, I, I think know? that's well said. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> good. Good point, Robin. <laughs> I accept. <laughs> right. Just because, and frankly, even if we wanted to, yeah, which we have, like you and I may not do this with our daily time, but a lot of people do, right? There's scientists who are actively creating models with as fine level of detail as they're able to, where they do, you know, have models with minutia and extrapolate different states from that. And the, you know, it just, our track rec records show that we're not able to do that with great success after a certain sort of fog um, in the future, right? There's a, a, a fog that grows progressively heavy to the point of being uh, totally opaque, right? To a certain point in the future, depending on what you're trying to model, I would say. Um, yeah. And we might not ever break through that. I don't think we ever will. I don't think that's our place. I don't think that's the place of the human. And <laughs> that's almost like a theological statement I just made. But yeah. Well, tune in next time to find out what's <laughs> different about <laughs> Listening Glass Podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you again, Robin. Ditto, man. Yeah. Let's, let's pick it up again soon. Let's do it. All right. <laughs> Take Thanks care out there in the world. Yeah. Ciao. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Listening Glass. If you've enjoyed this show, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends and on social media. Your word of mouth means a lot to us and is a way you can help our humble podcast grow. This episode features the track Dr. Bochef Penguin Dentist by Kneebody, Lipton Service Boy by Aero Johannes, and Vis and Sitta by Mag Woodruff. We're incredibly grateful to these artists for letting us feature their work. Find out more information on them in the episode description. Find us on our Twitter handle at Listening Glass. You can leave feedback there or by emailing us at listeningglasscast at gmail.com. Join the ongoing discussion in our community by joining our Discord server, linked in our episode description.